Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Gender Equality Series for the United Nations House Scotland podcast. My name is Hannah Lawrence, and today I'll be speaking with Madeleine Black, best-selling author and international public speaker. We will be discussing violence against women and girls in honor of the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. The 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence is an annual international campaign that begins on the 25th of November, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and runs until December 10th, Human Rights Day. It was started by activists at the inaugural Women's Global Leadership Institute in 1991 and continues to be coordinated each year by the Center for Women's Global Leadership. It is used as an organizing strategy by individuals and organizations around the world to call for the prevention and elimination of violence against women and girls. This year, UN House is proud to have partnered up with the Edinburgh chapter of this campaign. The committee members are Nika Noakes of the Scottish Business Resilience Center, Angela Vulgari of Equally Safe Edinburgh of the Edinburgh Council, and Nabila Ramatula of the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service, and myself, in my other capacity as committee member of the Edinburgh chapter of this campaign. Madeleine, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this topic, which is so vitally important in a world where women are still suffering from unbelievable amounts of violence just because they're women. You're welcome, Hannah. Thanks for having me along. Oh, you're so welcome. It would be great if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Well, I am Madeleine Black. I am I guess I'm a sexual violence activist. I never really intended to be one, but I've kind of found myself in that position. I first shared my story about seven years ago, one of sexual violence, and I then wrote a memoir called Unbroken. And I realized that there's huge power in sharing our stories, not really for me, but what it can do for other people. So even though it took me decades to find my voice, I find myself needing or wanting to speak up for all those who can't find their voice, because I'm just really passionate, I guess, in ending the shame, the stigma and the silence, because I think that's what holds women back from speaking their truth. Thank you so much. Um, That's absolutely true. I've watched some of your TED Talks and some of your interviews, and I know that you have a book out called Unbroken. And is all of this about the experience that you had when you were 13 years old? It is, yeah. So for those that don't know, I was gang raped when I was 13 and then I was raped three more times before the age of 18. And so I share my experience and I don't really sugarcoat it. I have to be honest, if anyone's thinking of reading it, it's not so easy in parts because I thought, you know, I don't want to make it easy for people to digest. We, we should be shocked by what happens because we get so desensitized. Oh, that's another woman raped, another woman killed, another woman abused. You know, we just hear it so much because it is so prevalent. So I do say it for how it is, but I also talk about my healing journey and people assume, I think, that if it happened to you, that you'd never be the same again. But I actually do believe now that we can grow through what we go through. And if anything, I am 
stronger for having gone through that you know it showed me actually how resilient we really can be and how we can bounce forward in life and make a difference for other people wow grow through what we go through i really like that that's really really good i've read a little bit about your experience i've uh, i saw your ted talk like i said um and it is harrowing and it is it's unbelievable just to hear someone say it so matter of factly i think mm -hmm. it, it is a real shock to the system because uh, and i think i caught myself looking at your face and seeing if there was any sign that it was hurting you to say it or it was painful um and and it didn't it didn't seem like it to me and, but that's what i look for and i almost it was hard to focus on what you were saying because i was just looking for signs that you were hating what you were saying and i think it's that it's that idea that there is this shame around it or yeah. or you know whatever that means for someone yeah for years I, you know i just incorrectly believed that the shame belonged to me you know if somebody had found out what had happened to me they would be disgusted or they wouldn't want to know me but that's just the impact of the trauma and that just lied to me for years it told me i was this disgusting being that this has happened to but you know we're not we're not what happens to us uh we're not our bodies we're not the events in our life we're all so much more than that and uh, I couldn't do it if I really wasn't okay. I had eventually, after a load of therapy, I had to learn to let it go because otherwise it would consume my life till the end of my days. And I didn't want to be filled with hate and revenge and all the other feelings I had for years. So yeah, I can't stand on that stage unless I'm in a really good place. And when I stood on that red dot with my TEDx, it was very nerve wracking because there were 2000 pairs of eyes staring back at me. It was my biggest audience ever. But I just thought, really, this is not about me speaking anymore. This is about who's listening. And that's what focuses me when I'm speaking out. It was absolutely wonderful. It was so moving. I was really choked up at the end. And I thought, you know, I, I don't really get choked up that often. And so I just I felt like it, it was really unbelievable to see your strength on that stage, because um, I really can't imagine what it felt like being in front of all those people yeah. not yet that red yeah, dot yeah. yeah you know what it was one of the most scariest moments of my life but it was one of the most liberating moments of my life as well because it's like well here i am this is my story yeah. and nobody died from shock nobody ran out of the audience nobody booed me off it was okay and and it's afterwards what always happens the stories that come to me or the difference it makes to other people that's what motivates me that's what keeps me going absolutely so one of the things that I want to talk to you about is the feelings of guilt or responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, I think that this, this could resonate with a lot of women. And even with me, I think every woman really in varying degrees of magnitude, um, they can relate to that idea. Um, it's, it's something that's often uh, repeated to us, used against us to keep us mm -hmm. silent and transfer yep. blame. We're all familiar with it in some way. So I know that you said that, so it happened when you were 13 and then you didn't start talking about it really until much, much later. So yeah. did that guilt or sense of response, it was your responsibility, what happened to you? Did that keep you silent? Was that part of it? Well, there was, even though I didn't know about it, there was the victim blaming. You know, I had bought into all these untold messages, even from the late 1970s, that it, this was actually my fault. You know, I bought this yeah. on myself. So I guess there was the guilt there. But there was huge fear because they threatened me and they said, if I told anyone, they'd kill me. One of them, I wasn't so sure, but one of them, I thought actually, 
I've looked into his eyes. He could absolutely kill me. And it was, in fact, the other one who stopped him from killing me on about two or three occasions during that event. And that was a bit weird because I had to be very grateful to one of them. I even know he did the most revolting things to my body, but he stopped his friend really from killing me. So, yeah, it was fear, absolute fear that um, they would find me and track me down and kill me. That's again it's it's unbelievable really to hear you know that because of course we know these things happen and you know there are statistics reflecting as much but to hear it i think is is a totally different beast and i hear you talk about the one that quote unquote saved you um a couple of times and and there's there's a particular amount of humanizing that has to happen for you mm -hmm. to get to that space to uh, to say something like that. And so um, that, that kind of brings me to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which was compassion and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so could you talk a little bit about how compassion and forgiveness uh, healed you and helped you take control back in your life? Yeah, and I, I just want to be clear, you know, I'm not a forgiveness preacher. I don't tell people the only way to heal is to forgive. You know, this is just how I did it. And it really took me by surprise because I, I never intended to forgive them. I was so filled with hate. I was consumed and I plotted in my head all these fantasies against them that somebody would basically do the same to them. And I just, you know, that really passed a lot of my time for many, many years. But eventually I got to a space when I thought, actually they've got no idea that i'm hating them they really don't get it at all and it was when my oldest daughter anna was 13 it was kind of a combination of a few different things so i was studying psychotherapy i was very very interested in personal development i kind of wanted to drain my swamp and kind of clean up all the trauma and anna my eldest one she turned 13 so it was just like everything just came rushing back you know it just opened up this door in my head which i must have sealed shut for years and all the memories all the pictures all the images all the thoughts all the feelings everything just came back to me generally at night i would dream a lot of the stuff and i i really thought i was bonkers i just thought i was mad because i've worked at women's aid for 14 years i worked at rape crisis for six years and i just thought you know You've just heard lots of other women's stories and you're getting your head confused with all of their stuff. This didn't happen to you. So it just showed me how we minimize stuff. It didn't show me at the time. Afterwards, when I got to a place of healing, we minimize things, we deny it, we don't want to look at it. You know, it wasn't that bad. We do that to ourselves and then society does it to us. But it was getting so bad, so I went to therapy and it was really very near to the end of my three years, which was the last time I was in therapy. So Anna's now. 28 so yeah 15 years ago i was in therapy and my therapist just wondered out loud that maybe they weren't born rapists which is really what i speak about in the tedx at the end and at first i just thought you know i was so angry with him <laughs> how could he suggest something so stupid you know of course they were bloody animals i hated them i wanted them to have the most painful death but you know, you just planted a little seed in my head, which took root and it started to grow and grow and grow. And I just found myself really, I guess, wanting to know, wanting to understand how can two young men who really, you know, they weren't much older than me, how did they know to be so violent, you know? And, and I just thought, I, I believe we all are born the same. We come into this world a blank sheet, but we get conditioned by life. And I wanted to know why had they become so violent that they thought it was okay to behave 
in a way that they did with me that night. And somehow, I don't know where it came from, but I felt compassion in my heart because I thought, you know, I've done a really good job of cleaning up my life. My, my best revenge was having the children that I thought I didn't, I couldn't have because I thought it would be like being raped again. Meeting my husband, obviously meeting my husband came before them, having the children part. But I, I, that was my best revenge, was living my best life. But I thought they've got to live with what they did to someone else. And I don't think that would be easy. But I saw that forgiveness really was, um, first of all, it was for me, you know, all I did on that night, I was just a naive 13 year old girl who went out on a night out that tried alcohol for the first time and it went horribly wrong. But for years, I put so much emphasis on the blame that I was so stupid that I brought this on myself, that this was my fault. You know, what did I expect? I bought alcohol, I'd lied, all of that. And then I realized, that, you know, it was nothing to do with me. It was nothing to do with the alcohol, nothing to do with the clothes I wore that night. The choice came down to these two men who just decided to rape me that night. And it actually even wasn't personal. It, I think it was just a, an opportune moment for them. It could have been any drunk young teenager that they picked up that night. So once I felt compassion in my heart, I realized that actually to completely let this go, I could choose to forgive them after forgiving myself. And that was a choice that I made, but that choice took, oh gosh, like 30, 40 years to come to. It took a long, long time. I'm 56 now. So this happened quite a long time ago in my life. But yeah, so that's how I kind of came to a place of compassion and forgiveness. And for me, forgiveness, I guess, it's about understanding and it's about letting it go, just realizing that you can't change anything. It has happened. And the more I think I held on to it, the more I resisted it, actually the stronger and harder and faster all the memories came back. Yeah. So letting it go was just my way of bringing in peace and quiet. And it really, honestly, most people don't believe it, but it really rarely impacts on my life in any way at all now. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, actually. I remember when you were speaking about your fears and anxieties almost crippling you in your daily life for many of those years. I was going to ask if today you feel any of those residuals from that experience or if you feel you've gotten past the point of it entering your everyday life. Yeah, I, I don't feel any residue of trauma left behind at all. But I, you know, I've been very thorough. I've done a lot, a lot of therapy, not just talking therapy, but a lot of therapeutic uh, work within the body, a lot of alternative therapies, because I believe the trauma gets trapped in ourselves. You know, when it all came back, I was just caught in denial for years. I couldn't believe that I wouldn't remember it if it was that bad. So my therapist, you know, suggested going to see someone that does therapeutic massage. And I just was a bit cynical as you are. And I went along, <laughs> I lay on the massage couch and I could hear this woman crying and screaming and kicking and fighting with the therapist. And I just thought, well, you know, for goodness sake, who is making all that noise? And then I realized it was coming from me. <laughs> and it was like, first of all, I was mortally embarrassed as, you know, an English woman, we would be ashamed making a scene, but it, it really actually helped because I realized, you know, I can't trust my mind because what is our mind? You know, we cut it open, it, it doesn't bleed, but I had to trust the way my body responded to being triggered by the memories. And it actually really, it really grounded me, really, even though it was very disturbing, it really helped me. So 
anytime I ever did any kind of therapeutic work and I shook or I cried or I screamed or I threw up, it actually made me think, yep, your body cannot make this up. Your mind maybe can be a bit warped, but there's no way I could make my body behave like that on purpose. So that really, uh, I guess, exercised it out of my body. (laughs) What you've just said about therapy is so important. Therapy can situate trauma in the body and mind. It can help us make sense of the suffering and healing process. Therapy for many communities has not entered the mainstream, which actually makes sense when you think about how coming forward with the truth of your abuse has not been made mainstream, unfortunately. What we get then are, what we get is enormous amounts of women who are living with their trauma responses, their bodies retorting against something they can't even articulate. And unfortunately, because of the way the world has and continues to be organized, it's ethnic minorities and women from low-income backgrounds uh, who will most likely not get the help they need. So again, thank you for advocating for therapy. It's so important. And unfortunately, there are just so many women out there who will never know how liberating it can be. It was awful. I hated it. I dreaded going because I knew what was going to come up. And I I recognize that I'm privileged. You know, I could afford to pay for a private one. I could afford to pay for all these alternative sweat lodges or taking plant medication or walking on fire, you know, all the other Mm. stuff that some people might consider a bit wacky, but really helped me all the stuff that I did. I, I was privileged. I can afford to pay for it. And I know that's not available to other people. So there really should be affordable therapy for all. I couldn't agree more. I really couldn't agree more. Um, and so I do want to just briefly go back to when you spoke about your husband. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious as to what space you were in when you met him and how did anything happen in you? Did you have any kind of response, trauma response when uh, you realized you've met this man and you're falling for this man or whatever that might have meant for you? Yeah, well, we just celebrated 33 years marriage. We've been together 38 years, wow. so it's quite a few years. But yeah, the poor man has seen me in many different spaces. <laughs> he really deserves uh, quite a few medals. But it, I don't know, you know, there was just something when I met him, and I think I speak about it in TEDx as well, that I, I just trusted him. Somehow I just knew I was going to be okay with him. And I do write about him in my book, and I say, he, I believe he was an angel sent to save me, absolutely, because I think if I hadn't met him, you know, I was doing more and more drugs. I was kind of living life quite dangerously, not really caring about myself. And he came in at that time and and really, we shouldn't really look for external things to save us, but he's been the most amazing support. Whilst he might not believe in working with a shaman or doing sweat lodges or whatever I've done, he says, if it helps you, you just go and do it. And, you know, so he's always been very respectful, whatever I needed to do. And he's just, I guess it's just unconditional love. But yeah, there was many times, um, even when I thought I was okay. So especially when we're being intimate, which most people don't really speak about, but his face could turn into their faces or they could start hovering above me. And I would just in the middle of being intimate, have to push him off and kick him off or or at the very end, I could start to cry. It would just trigger something in and not even knowing why I was crying. And he just said, are you okay? And he would just hold me and let me cry. And then, you know, he would just, I would just feel his eyelashes feeling for my tears on my face. And just, he would just know that I was crying and, and he would just hold me and, and really be okay. And if always 100% totally respectful, you know, never, 
um, as it should be if I said, no, not in the mood, whatever, then that's always fine. But actually it was through him loving me, I guess he showed me that I was lovable because I didn't really believe it. I just thought I was this worthless person that was contaminated and I was ruined for life, you know, and I thought if he knew all the details, which took me many, many years to tell him, I thought it would put him off me, put me off, put him off me as a person or put him off me sexually. He wouldn't want to go anywhere near me, but it's, those are just the shame. That's just the shame again, lying to me because that's obviously 38 years later, that's not been the case. Um, so yeah, just by being loved and allowing that love in, it kind of took down that brick wall, I guess, that I built around me, to, which is normal to protect yourself. You know, all the defense layers that we put in to protect ourselves, which is it's kind of a bit weird because it's like locking the door after the horse has already bolted, but we go into mm. protection mode once the worst things already happened. And letting love in, I could let love back out to him. And it just showed me love is always, always going to win over hate. Always. I love that. I love hearing that, you know, it seems like your, your story has a fairy tale ending. It's so, <laughs> it's so nice to hear that you've, you've found that unconditional love, you know, as you deserve and that you're finding new ways to, to love yourself through his love for you and through, I'm sure your love for your daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I, I remember uh, hearing about your story where uh, your daughter was 13 and wanted to ride the school bus yes. and, and <laughs> you wanted to take her to school, but she, she wanted to go on the bus. And so you followed the bus. Is I that right? I, yeah. I thought, how stupid is that? It was just when she was going, what they call high school here, or same in America, I guess, but or secondary yeah. school. And, uh, she wanted just to be like with all her pals, you know, go along with them. And I said, no way. I'm just going to, oh mom, you know, so she wore me down. And then I, I, got to school and I followed the bus and I thought, what am I doing? This is crazy. But then that really made me aware that I could, if I'm not careful, I could transfer all of my fears that I carry within me onto my girls. And it took me a long time to have my children because I was terrified at the idea of giving birth. I had to go through another good few years of therapy before I thought, no, I've got to do this. Otherwise they've won and I can't let them win. That's when I thought (laughs) this is my best revenge. I'm going to be a mum and live my life and enjoy my life. And I just thought if I transfer all my fears onto my daughters, what's the point in bringing them into this world? I'll just kind of corrupt their minds or condition their minds to be full of fear. So I went from inside feeling every fear, everything scared me, not anymore, uh, and letting them do whatever they wanted within reason. So, you know, at 15, Anna was clubbing, she had fake ID, I would let her friends come to me and have the pre's at my house. But as long as I always knew where they were, and as long as we collected them, they were fine. So I just think if I wrap them up in cotton wool, they'd never learn, they'd never be streetwise. So she learned, she learned through experience, she got drunk a few times and she said, Yep, anything could happen to me. I didn't like being out of control. Not that that's the reason why we get attacked or assaulted, but you know, I just had to let her live her life really. And I want them to be, you know, confident, free, spontaneous spirits. I don't want them to be contained and full of fear. So 
it was a big journey for me. And I think, why did life give me three girls? You know, not even boys, three <laughs> girls. I've got to do this every time. So, I thought yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like in my head, which doesn't make sense, but it doesn't make sense to me now. But, you know, it's a bit crazy. Once they got to 13, I thought, well, they're safe now. But we know women, girls can be raped or attacked at any age in their life. I guess we're never completely safe, really. But uh, yeah, to me, I thought, well, I've made it now. They've all got past the age where I had my biggest trauma. So they'll be okay now. But yeah, they just have to live their life. Well, that's a pretty inspiring turnaround. If 13, you were following her bus and 15, she was <laughs> clubbing yes. with a fake ID. That's really great. It didn't take long at all. That's fantastic. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll shift a little bit and talk to you about um, one of the, the gender-based violence debates in the UK and, mm -hmm. and just a particular element of it. And that's, and that's the element basically where in the UK, US, and to an extent Europe, there's this idea that gender-based violence isn't a problem for us mm -hmm. per se. They don't go as far to claim that these crimes don't happen, but they kind of scoff at the idea that these are things which need to be addressed and combated in some strategic way. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, even as you say, it just makes me so angry. <laughs> I, I did tape a couple of shows that were on TV like a week or so ago, Rape Who's on Trial. And we just see it's like, I mean, I thought it was slightly better, but it's like they say of all cases that make it to court, 1% will end in a conviction. And it, it just, it's like they've decriminalized it. Of course, there's yeah. gender-based violence. If there wasn't, it would be fantastic. We would be the first people to say, isn't it brilliant? There's no gender-based violence. But the statistics wouldn't be so high. And of all people that are raped per year, they say maybe 20% of people will report. So all those women, children, and men, I guess, out there that are uh, raped as well as sort of, they're all walking around untreated, unhealed, un, unsupported with their trauma. So yeah, it's just nonsense. <laughs> it, I of course couldn't agree more. And I think just coming off your, your statistics, I've got a few statistics here that I'll share with our listeners so that they can kind of understand the scope of what we're talking about here. Globally, an estimated 736 million women, almost one in three, have been subjected to intimate partner violence, non-partner sexual violence, or both at least once in their life. Calls, this is pertaining to COVID, calls to helplines have increased fivefold as yes. rates of reported intimate partner violence uh, increase because of COVID-19. And then as you said, uh, I think you said 20% of women who experience violence seek mm -hmm. help, which is obviously it's <laughs> that statistic makes the other ones so terrifying as they <laughs> illuminate the fact that the others are, you know, they represent but a fraction of the actual yes. cases. And um, these are the so, ones that we know about, aren't they? The seven it, point whatever million, because I never reported that's five men I've never reported. So I exactly. can't be alone. You know, my story is just a story of many, many, many people. And I can remember early on in lockdown, I'm a patron for a Glasgow organization called Say Women. And we support young women that are homeless and they have to leave their home due to sexual abuse. And within the first three weeks of lockdown, I think 16 women, two of which were children, had been killed at the hands of a partner or an ex-partner. Wow. 
that was the first three weeks of lockdown because there's no escape. What do you do if you're locked in with your abuser? If life was okay, for me, it was fun. You know, really, we just drank more gin, did jigsaws. My husband <laughs> attempted sourdough. We made banana bread. Let everyone, you know, if you're locked in with your abuser, your life just became so much more serious. It magnified the, the fear and the everything by so much. Um, so it was a terrifying time for women. Absolutely. You've clearly worked in the sector, which I didn't actually realize that you had been working in the sector for so long. So did you start working um, in these spaces before uh, you started talking about your own yes, experiences? I did. Before I came out, I always kind of say, I have a friend who um, came out as being gay after being married to two women. I said, we both came out at the same time. So we <laughs> remember when we both came out. But yeah, I, I always wanted to work with women issues. Obviously, this was always in the background, but I never yeah. spoke about what had happened to me. And I went to Women's Aid first because I thought, I don't know if I'd quite manage rape crisis. And then I worked at rape crisis and I, and I spoke a little bit, but I hadn't gone public like I've gone public now. And I also work with another organization, actually two organizations. I work with um, Justice Is Now. I'm a patron for them and they do training within the court system. So they train the judges and the lawyers to actually end rape myths and rape culture within the justice system. And you think mm. if we have to do that with our lawyers, we've got no chance with the public. We can't be naive to think that the public don't walk in with these preconceived ideas, you know, oh well, she was wearing a lacy thong or she went up to his hotel room, so she's obviously guilty. So there's a, a lot of good work being done there. And I also am an ambassador for freedom from abuse and they do a lot of training with other people around child sexual abuse so there's a lot of amazing organizations doing really good work but i'd love to say that they weren't needed i'd love to say one day that they're you know we don't need them they're, they've gone because we've eradicated sexual violence sexual assault child sexual abuse but sadly it doesn't feel that way it just feels like we hear it more and more and more no yeah i i i totally understand that so I guess my next question then would be, what do you think that governments, uh, organizations like the ones that you've worked with or others, mm -hmm. um, or any institution really can do to make coming forward easier for women? Well, I guess we really need to look at institutionalized misogyny and sexism because, you know, mm -hmm. as we're recording this podcast, it's not that long since Sarah Everett's murderer and rapist was yeah. found guilty and ex-policeman. And they say there's no misogyny within the police force. But, you know, who does police the police? His, his mm -hmm. colleagues called him the rapist and they laughed about it. So how seriously are they taking violence against women if they think that's a joke? There must be serious concerns if you talk about your colleague in those terms. And the response from the chief commissioner, I think, in Yorkshire was women shouldn't allow themselves to be arrested by a male police officer. So again, putting all the onus back onto the woman, mm -hmm. you know, it's we should be keeping ourselves safe. We shouldn't be walking in an under area. And they're trying to prevent another Sarah Everett, where actually we should be preventing no more Wayne Cousins. We should be looking at male perpetrators and stopping them rather than telling women it's you on you, it's your onus, because that's a massive part of victim blaming. You know, well, actually, I did get arrested by one police officer, so it was my fault he did whatever he did to me you know that's mm -hmm. that's not on it's really and it's ingrained not just in police systems and so many organizations so we need to give women the space to speak up to be believed to be heard it's not just our issue it's 
men's issue. It's the very reason why we're in this predicament is male violence against women. So we need to look at how do we eradicate it? And actually, I don't have the answer, yeah. but we need to be very clear. It's no amount of lighting, chastity belts, wearing jeans. That will never make a difference because we know babies and nappies are raped. We know that women and burkas are raped. I was a teenager in a pair of it was a time when you wore really, really skin tight jeans. You had to peel them on and I had a hoodie. So yeah, that couldn't have been my clothing that raped me. You know, it came down to these two men. So a lot of shifts need to be made, but we need to be clear. This is not about, it's not a woman's safety issue. It's a male violence issue. And we need our brothers, the good men out there to call on men when they hear any inappropriate jokes. So if they feel a woman's uncomfortable to support her as best as they can, you know, society needs to shift in, in a big way. But sadly, I don't have the answers. <laughs> I really don't. I, uh, it was a, it was a big question that I knew yeah. and it was just, but this, that's exactly what I was looking for. And I think the point that you made about um, inserting the man back in, in what we're calling it. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, not violence against women, it's male violence against women and, yeah. um, you know, put them back into the headlines, you know, this girl didn't just get raped. This person raped her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the way we frame it, the way we speak about yes. it. And I saw something, I can't remember where, because I'm all over social media, it might have been on Twitter, about an organization that speaks to male perpetrators of domestic abuse. It was a helpline for them, which might sound mm -hmm. odd to some people, but I think it's great if men can recognize they are this abusive, controlling, powerful mm -hmm. figure, and they want to change. Surely that's a massive way forward. You know, If they can recognize they don't like this behavior in themselves and they want to do something different, I think it's great that there is that support for them as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more because we are in this together. It's it's not, it's, you know, males against it's on females. All of us. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean that that just comes back to what we were saying about humanizing people um, and having compassion. And yeah. and I think the sooner that we start doing that for each other, um, the better. Absolutely. I want to close out by saying a huge thank you for speaking with us today, Madeleine. Your voice has given so many people across the world hope and strength and a voice of their own. The enormity of that should not be understated. Every year we have 16 days of the world's attention to bring awareness to this problem, but it's women like you that help us turn 16 days into 365 days of awareness and keep people alert to the reality of violence against women. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And if anyone's listening, I would just say it's never too late to find your voice and get support. Thank you so much. Links to Madeleine's social media, as well as her TED Talk, podcast, and best-selling book, Unbroken, will be in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the United Nations House Scotland podcast. The hosts of this podcast are all volunteers with UN House Scotland. If you'd like to get involved or learn more, please visit the UNHS website at unhscotland.org.uk. If you have any questions or would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss on the podcast, please email us at podcast at unhscotland.org.uk. Don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts if you'd like to be notified of a new episode. Thank you for listening and see you soon.